Hello and welcome to Clappercast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief, Jack Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by Carson Tamar. Hello, hello. And Jakob Flash. Hello. On today's episode, we are discussing David Ayer's The Tax Collector, Blackwater Abyss, Beyonce's visual album, Black is King, and Zoom Horror Host. Let's start with David Ayer's The Tax Collector. You heard of me? What have you heard? I heard you're the devil. I might be. Ah, come on, fool. Good, eh? Every gang in LA has to pay their taxes. What's up, Holmes? Wake up. If you stack short, go rob a bank. Rob your own mother. There's no excuses. Do not test that. Whoa, hey, whoa, whoa. You guys look like a couple of monsters. I'm gonna hell, man. Yeah, but I'm at peace with that. David is a family man who works as a gangland tax collector for high-ranking Los Angeles gang members. He makes collections across the city with his partner, Creeper, making sure people pay up or will see retaliation. I reviewed the tax collector for the website, so it's probably best that I start this discussion. Um, first and foremost, I'm going to put this straight out there. This is an undesirable dude if I've ever seen one before. Uh, th- this is a film that is so incredibly bland and visually mute that, that it's actually painful to watch at times. And just to sort of ca- cast our minds back maybe a few years, David Ayer has had, a, a, for the last what, three features he's made, has had a track record of, of films that just haven't hit the heights that perhaps not only he wanted, but the studio. So going from something like Netflix and Warner Brothers and not particularly getting final cut and going back down to the nitty-gritty independent cinema that, 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 that gave him his, his bread and butter, with stuff like Harsh Times and Street Kings and, and uh, writing Training Day. Um, this feels like a natural progression for him, but... I am genuinely sorry to say that this is a, an absolute disaster. I mean, the one thing that I think a lot of us can probably admit where even though David Ayer's films don't particularly like, like The House on Fire, they do sort of have this visual aesthetic that's that's quite interesting. I mean, granted, Bright, Suicide Squad, not particularly uh, powerful on the visuals, but undoubtedly they, they have got like this individual flair to, 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 to to what what occurs in those films, and I couldn't tell you what does in both horrible things. However, with Fury and with End of Watch, his, his last two sort of big hits, those two films st- stood out to me purely because End of Watch subverts this sort of pure uh, conventional tale of this LA cop um, with this like found footage aesthetic at times, and I think it really works. And Fury is this dark, morbid, really grinning looking World War II um, action adventure film that generally looks outstanding. So here to, to find out why this is such, that um, why this film is so mundane is actually sort of very difficult for me to sort of understand. I mean, the re- result here is just so, like such a conventional and, and just bland tale. I mean, it's almost two hour running time as well. There's like one scene in which Ayer injects visual flair. And, and to, to me, I, I don't demand an, an, an impressive set piece, but I feel I think like Taylor Sheridan's Wind River, you can have a very conventional tale, but you can have that one moment which just engulfs the audience. And here, I'm afraid to say there's, there's, there, there is that one scene 
but it happens in such a flash that it's blinking your eyes miss it. And I don't mean that to be hyperbolic. I think that's generally a quite on the nose description of, of that scene himself. However, I think the greatest sin here is that Aya delivers such a hollow, empty, meaningless plot. Nothing throughout this film is justified and in its place is like, it's, a, it's an excessive nature to exploit any and all imaginable horror. Now, like Training Day, you can show the horror of, of this, this sort of subsection of society. You, you, can, you can see how, how these gangs work, work their, their ways out and stuff like that. But here, it's just excessive to the point of oblivion. I mean, none of it feels, like I said, justified at all. It's all this really sort of stereotypical horror moments where it just felt sort of rationally... Um, redundant and quite tone deaf but I think that's a theme that we'll, we'll probably jump on to next is that um, with, with a certain character however I think going back on to, to, to the screenplay I mean there's nothing organic or there's, there's just no emotional thematic discourse here there's nothing to sort of listen to or read or, or watch and, and take something from it and I think even at the simplistic level of being entertained it fails on that I mean the screenplay in itself is so paper thin and flat it's almost unbelievable that this is considered a narrative at all i mean it just feels like this is a two-hour film cut up into sort of an hour and 29 minutes and to that extent it, it just feels like a clusterfuck of, of images and and and, and stories sort of spliced together in like a weird science experiment i mean just spoke about like this this racial undertone i mean then there's a performance of shia labeouf to contend with I mean, like many many people who who are, are going to see this, and it's already started, um, and it, and and stuff like this has this has been quite relevant for some time. I mean, Zoe Saldana came uh, under a lot of scrutiny for uh, how um, her performance of Nina Simone was ultimately blackface, and I think I think there's definitely credible um, uh, arguments there, undoubtedly. Here, there's definitely a conversation to have about brownface, and to that degree, I think the controversy around this is is really deserved. Um, further by, I think. The, the film makes matters worse by not providing like substantial depth to quantify if Shia LaBeouf's character, which is called Creeper, is in fact from Latino heritage or is the film like, and I'm going to put this in, in air quotes, fairly and faintly suggests he is enamored with, with this character, David, and what his life entails. And I think David A has gone on to Twitter and sort of responded to this and said, look, he's a Jewish kid in a Latino neighborhood. And that's like his, 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 his performance as a performance in itself. That's fine. And I, I understand that. And that can work as a character study. However, there's nothing on offer here in terms of depth to understand the character of Creeper. There's no background, his motives, or even an ounce of personality. It, there's just nothing there. I mean, getting your body tattooed with the word Creeper for a role is one thing. De Niro has done it for, for Kate Few of all those tattoos. But Labuth has, uh, has gone like one step further and got that tattoo for life. Now, I'm not going to spoil anything here, but Shia LaBeouf's Creeper is not the main character here. <laughs> and I think that, that it's almost a laughing stock that he's actually done that. I mean, I, I'm genuinely, I'm flummoxed to, to, to what was in that mindset. However, even though Labuth will come under fire, I think nevertheless, it should be noted that Aya is not innocent at all in this. It's his screenplay, it's his writing here that fails um, to explore that character. And ultimately, it just falls flat. I mean, it just crumbles from the inside. I mean, like, it's not only naivety from a cultural standpoint, but the sheer lack of awareness regarding his terrible screenplay is just beyond common sense. 
and and again, this was meant to be. And again, it's something very similar with with Josh Trank's Capone and and David Ayer's The Tax Collector. I think in in ten years' time, they'll make a very interesting double bill of two very well-renowned directors in their own right making um, a couple of interesting films and then having the studio system eat them up and spit them back out and then every single element is there for them just to go back to, to their roots and make something incredible but by that time they've just lost it they don't know how to make independent films anymore to the quality of and probably standard that's there and all in all while this is generally a really disappointing film it's just a ghastly unkempt piece of shit to be honest and it is disappointing i mean it really is it's probably the most underwhelming and most disappointing feature i've seen in some time i think the only thing harder for me than watching the movie is actually finding things to talk about with when it comes to the movie to put it like as openly as possible this feels like if in like 2000 like mid 2000s you just turn on tv and there's just like a very cheap very standard straight to tv movie um about the subject matter i mean even with david ayer i tend to think that i'm more on the positive side than most people i like suicide squad to a point i think in all of his films there's at least something interesting to talk about or some style to hook you or something there in the tax collector there's absolutely nothing within this film that like even I have, it gives me enough to have a strong enough opinion on to where I even want to talk about it. The visual style is so dark and just bland. The characters are bland, the story is bland. Every piece of this movie is just bland to the point where it's like, I can't even go on and on and say, you know, I hate it and this is all the reasons why I hate it. It's just so uninspired. It didn't hook me in the slightest. Um, I just found myself really frustrated just sitting watching the movie for an hour and 30 minutes, which it feels like it's about double that runtime. Um, just watching these characters, watching the story, but feeling absolutely nothing from them. This is one of the blandest viewing experiences I've had maybe all year long. Like even with something like Doolittle, right? Like Doolittle is my least favorite film of the year so far. I could sit there and say, this is shit and point out, you know, oh, this is a horrible choice. This is a horrible choice. This is a horrible choice. You know, like, like there are clear horrible things in there. Here, it was just so uninspired that I didn't even get that anger from it of, oh, this director and these characters are horrible choices. It's just simply the blandest, like, shit I've maybe seen all year long when I'm really thinking about it. I came away from this movie with no bullet points, no inspiration to talk about this movie. It is just complete blandness, which is so disappointing coming from a director who even in his bad outings has at least points that are interesting to talk about. I was so uninspired by this film. Um, yeah, this one just, it did not gel with me in the slightest. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's, al it's almost impossible to respond to these arguments now. You just poured like a absolute shit ton of vitriol on this and it, like how how do i how do i get get from under this to even have you know a coherent thought to kind of just start to start with okay let's go one by one actually uh, your one of your remarks carson you know, that's, you know which you kind of say is as you say it's a con it's 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 the, the film's disadvantage is that it kind of looks like a like a tv movie from the 2000s i would go even a few steps further i'd say it kind of looks like um a david ayer films in general maybe with the small exception of uh, his quote-unquote studio efforts which uh, 
we could argue whether what kind of a creative control we had over them he had over them or not um they kind of look and feel as though they are specifically designed to evoke a certain era and there's and this era is kind of well this is this is why my opinion is on on this is almost completely biased and it's the polar opposite of what you of, of what you guys have where you guys are with this because i don't have no idea I, you just hate fun as far as i'm concerned because <laughs> because like i watched uh, like I, I watched this film and then immediately i kind of just got transported in my mind into uh when i was growing up my my local video store that was kind of like a mom and pop shop um so it wasn't like a big sort of chain of, or anything it was just like a corner little video so where they had all the sort of b movies from the 80s and 90s and 70s and uh and i can almost feel the smell of the plastic sort of coverings and the, of, of the vhs tapes that they were kind of just and and i can hear the sort of sound of the the box clicking together when the lady would just package this sort of r-rated film for me because she absolutely had no idea that i'm not i'm not supposed to be watching like the Human Shield with Michael Dudikoff or the Delta Force at the right page of eleven, <laughs> but I would, but 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 there I was like borrowing them, renting them out, and then watching them nonetheless. Just the most brutal and violent B movies I could possibly find because they were amazing, right? And this is actually something that evokes this era to me. This kind of brings me back. This is like a time capsule for me that kind of just does this. This is a this is a B movie through and through. That's right. Like it's not supposed to enlighten. It's not, it's not supposed to, I don't know, touch on anything. Even though it actually has. Now that I think about it, uh, it, it has a some form of DNA in it that kind of connects to um, Ayer's other films. Because if you think about what what is what it is about, it's about family, and it's always been like his his thing. It was like in harsh times. It's all about the sort of camaraderie among among hoodlums, uh, street kings. It's the sort of police or brotherhoods. Same same thing with End of Watch, Fury. Same same thing. It's it it's always comes back to these sort of almost um, almost always there's sort of these male bonds between people who kind of do a job or they're just uh, kind of just find themselves together as a result of a of a professional predicament. Um, in this case, they're well, they're gangsters, right? Um, so it's kind of fun for me to to watch these things from that perspective but I, I i don't really expect david ayer's gangster films like sabotage or harsh times to actually en enrich my life in any way this is supposed to be cheap and easy entertainment so i i, I kind of approach it this way so i dial down my expectations for this um and i kind of say okay you can say well it's i can see like a cheap like a cheap pair of shoes which is well, they're not going to get you very far. They're not going to, you know, last you for ages. You're not going to be using them forever, but they're going to get you from A to B, and then you, you know, like, it'll, they'll be good for a journey, maybe for even for a couple of journeys, and that's fine. And at least from where I'm sitting, this is not supposed to be uh, a prestige dismantling of of you know gang problems in in South Central or wherever this this thing takes place. Um, the the only time where I actually saw this, he, uh, well, Ayer wanted to actually say anything more profound was with Fury, and he actually did it splendidly in my in in my opinion. But this is not this is not it. This is a B gangster film, and even the sort of color filter of the sort of sepia tone, which is cliche, kind of informs you straight away. This is supposed to look like a faux 
Tony Scott knockoff that you could, if, if video stores were a thing, you could, this would hit straight into VHS and you could pick it up for like a few bucks to rent for, for a night and you could just have a good time for 95 minutes and that's it. That's like, it, it's supposed to just go, you know, it, it's just supposed to go straight in, into your eyes and just leave immediately. It's not supposed to, you know, be anything, anything, anything of this sort. And actually, okay, well now this brings me also, okay, back to other things. It's not going to be the most sort of convenient segue because, you know, I, I kind of just sat up a little bit when you were, when Jack, you were mentioning the uh, Shia LaBeouf um, being a bit of an offense to the census. And I, and I actually had the exact polar opposite reaction to him, like, because I actually respect him as an artist. Like he, 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 like with every film I see see him in, I kind of like him more as a professional actor. He's he's one of the sort of few younger generations sort of actors who's kind of more committed to the method. He's because this is this is more more of a dying art now. Like people people are just being themselves, and that's fine, especially young well younger actors. And he's trying to he's looking up to to guys like de niro and al pacino and marlon brando and in in his craft and then this is an example of 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 this craft kind of being reduced to practice because he as pretty much david i also have to specify because people can't sort of process this that he's not a latino and he's playing a, a part in a latino sort of gang it doesn't have to be you know tom hagen in the godfather wasn't uh, wasn't an italian in, in Mario Puzo's novel, there was basically an, an adoptive American guy who was adopted by um, uh, Don Corleone, and that's fine. Like no one had a problem with this. There was this American guy who just grew up in among Italian kids, and he adopted these sort of Italian sort of mannerisms because he just this is how he grew up. And then so you could imagine having a Jewish kid growing up in in a, in a neighborhood among sort of Latino uh, uh, Latino guys. But he would also kind of just adopt these, uh, adopt this sort of culture, adopt the accent, adopt the dialect, because this, that's all he has around him, and people are shaped by their surroundings. So that's I, I don't have I don't have a slightest problem with this, uh, in terms of you know representation, whatever. That's fine. That's fine to me because he he is the sort of outsider in character. He's the Tom Hagen of of this film, although. His name, his name is Creeper, and that's basically just that's David Ayer's style because he's very on the nose. He's very sort of hyper stylized with everything that's why when he was thinking about having a character of joker and i'm pretty sure this was his idea he you know he this was his idea to actually have the character with with damaged tattoo across his forehead or wherever this was because he just thinks in these sort of overblown tones he he always oversaturates even his color palette's oversaturated everything's kind of overdone a little bit so when the violence is is on screen it's always a little bit too excessive um whenever sex is on screen, it's going to be a little bit tactless. Everything's going to be a little bit overboard. And that's fine because that's for me, this is, this is, this is how films from a certain era used to be. They were never in, in the cinemas. They, they were always kind of on the sort of video store shelves, kind of just committed to be, to be rented out by, well, by 11 year olds <laughs> or, or, or older people supposedly who were, who are interested in having a good time with sort of hard art and violent entertainment, and that's all it's supposed to be, in my opinion. So I'm, 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 I'm happy to. I don't want to die on this hill, but you know, I'm happy to champion this film in a way, uh, and and go to bat for it because I think it's getting maligned for, 
for not living up to standards that didn't even have well, that it didn't even have in in mind while well, well the framework it didn't have in mind while making it so in a way it's almost unfair to judge it you know it, it, it kind of brings me back to like artemis fowl and like all this type of this type of discussion because okay well there's there's a ceiling that's imposed by the filmmaker on what this film can possibly ever become in terms of its existence within the uh, current zeitgeist in, in in terms of its thematic and atmospheric aspirations um and in terms of its mission statement its mission statement is first and foremost to entertain and i'm sad to hear that it didn't entertain you um but it did entertain me and you know in a sort of nostalgic way because i kind of feel this is his i hit what what grindhouse is to robert rodriguez and quentin tarantino 80s and 90s sort of b movie gangster films tv movies of the week are to david Ayer, and then there's no shame in liking them they're not the highest form of of art well they're not even art. they're, they're not high, they're not highest form of entertainment but they're entertainment nonetheless and this and the kind of entertainment that's all but extinct these days you see uh hearing you talking like so passionately about this 80s action um phenomenon that that, that was like the likes of commando i i do see this in that light don't get me wrong i do see this david ayer going back to the well and and, and looking at you know he, he's being burnt a bit too many times let's make something that's a little bit silly a little bit excessive but deep down but let's just make a nitty-gritty uh little little film and to that extent, I do understand. My my problem is that there's just the, the comparison between the Godfather. I think is 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 slightly skewed because I think what Puzo and I think um, Coppola do is that they add nuance to it. That's why in, in the film I, I find that the other Italian wedding um, families go to Tom Hagen first for the deals because this I think it's that Italianism where they see they they it's like. It, it's more so a comment on on, on the, you know immigration in America, where these Italian Americans don't feel um, American, and they go to like the the, the born and bred um, American. Um, I, 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 I forget what he's a concierge or whatever it is. However, just going back to the uh, to the tax collector, I think the more I think about this film, that, that I have this horrible feeling in my head that, that David Ayer may be done because. There, there, there is one scene in this film, and, and me and Carson have, have, have generally joked about this off air, where um, there is a final fight in the third act between uh, the main character um, of what the film then re- reveals as the main character, let me say. That's, that's something also that I think is slightly disingenuous of David Ayer, but I think you can sort of accept that to be subvert expectations, so I'll let that slide, because I think it's an interesting thing to do. But there is this scene in, in question where um, the main character fights the villain in a, in a bathroom and 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 this the, our, our protagonist has been waterboarded and all of a sudden the film sort of flashes back in, into this um foreshadowing moment of when he was doing jujitsu and i and i just i couldn't find myself thinking there how that a was relevant because it he never actually does the, the moving question and and if it was meant to provide this theme of never give up it was so woefully done it just felt like they'd, they'd got the shot to that point and David A had realised, shit, we don't have that moment. We don't have that defining moment for David. Let's add in this. And then he went through the film and there's nothing there. There's simply nothing because there's no character depth. 
because ultimately he could use the family, but a few scenes before, he ruptures any sort of form of that because he overdoes it so incredibly, like, excessively. So here, he just thinks, like, let's just throw this in. And to me, that is the biggest warning sign of, 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 a, of a director who is not only slightly ignorant to his own film, but, again, fails to justify why that scene is there. And it's one, and I think people can, can find a, a multitude of those scenes in this film. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm at this point now with, with a lot of other directors where it's difficult to sort of assess where these, these directors go from this point. I mean, I talk about this on this podcast all the time now where I find it interesting where he will go or where she will go. And with David Ayer, it seems, and again, with, especially with Josh Trang as well, it seems that these two directors are intertwined in this, this um, prism, let's say, of just, I don't want to say failure because it's not a failure. He got a film released. He got a film with, with Shia LaBeouf in. He, he, he wrote it. He, he directed it. He got it out there. He's made, he's made money on this, you know? So I don't want to say it's a failure, but cinematic-wise and, and entertaining-wise, it does fail to sort of, for me personally, engulf me in moments where I want to be in awe. And the problem is, and, and I know what you mean, Jakob, and I think it's a fair, fair point to make how it's probably sort of unjust for me to go with that expectation. But I can't not feel like that with the cinema David A has released before. And it's one thing, and I hate bringing this person up, but it's the one thing I somewhat appreciate Tarantino for. Tarantino will not go out and direct that Star Trek film. Why? Because what's the point? What's the point of ruining a filmography? And he's learnt by death proof. What is the point of just adding upon a cinema that he's already done? And I think that where does David Ayer go next after this? Because, and, and, and like the likes of Josh Trank, it's just difficult to assess if this hasn't worked and this is meant to go back to, to the well. What is the equivalent of that? Because 10, 15 years ago, it was go back to, t- go to TV. Here, I'm just slightly sort of apprehensive to sort of make, a, make, make a, a, an assessment, if not where these two directors will indeed end up after this, because it's just, it's just so underwhelming from the cinema we've, we've seen from David Ayer in the past. And it's just, like Carson said, this is just so bland and underwhelming. It's just very difficult to sort of find remote, remotely positive you know, assessments of it, if I'm honest. If the film, as it, as it is, didn't, didn't have the sort of um, polish on it, like if it didn't kind of look like it's made in 2020, if it had these fake um, sort of like film crumples and uh, missing frames and uh, like a 1970s soundtrack, will this, would this actually work better? Because that would kind of make it more overtly Grindhouse film. Um, and this is how I kind of feel where your criticism say of the final sort of scene where he's um, battling the the big boss, right? Which is also a, a, an overblown sort of villain that like he has more in common with like the, the the main villain in the crow than like any sort of gangster. He's he's almost like a comic book character. He's his tattoos, he has he drinks blood, and and yeah, he's not. He's almost he's so over saturated that he's not human but when you say oh yeah well, well there's this flashback to this jujitsu scene and, and and there's this sort of weird sort of music going up that kind of just slapped onto this like this you could you could say that this is almost like a parody on in in a south park episode but to me this is purposeful like this he, he knows he's doing this and he's doing this for a reason because he kind of likes this sort of cheesy aesthetic and that's fine for me uh, the only sort of place where I can actually take criticism on this is 
where he okay he's been most comfortable in his little comfort zone right that's pretty much where he's been almost always right so harsh times strict street kings sabotage what else did he do um even stuff he's written they're all kind of just sort of la cent end of watch um la centric sort of they're all la centric sort of gangster crime films police procedurals and that's has always been his thing with a small exception of Fury, which kind of transplants this sort of, the same sort of thematic sort of core and then puts it in a World War II film, which is also oversaturated. Like, if you think about every round shot by any gun or a tank is a tracer round, so you can see these sort of red and green flashes everywhere, because even his war films are sort of stylized in a way they kind of look like they're taken out of a Star Wars film, and that's fine. That's his aesthetic, and that's, that's why probably one of the reasons why he was kind of just charmed by the idea of doing a comic book film about the suicide squad which is probably the biggest mistake he's ever made in his life because he's he, there was no there was no question he would ever be uh, allowed to kind of have a have the final cut on anything or have a final say on on, on things um but i, I will say that it, the film has a style the film the film has its own aesthetic it's just it's fine if you don't like it because it's not something new because that's what well, that's what he's been always doing. That's what harsh times looks like. That's what sabotage looks like. It, so it it is a valid criticism to, or a valid question to ask to see where he goes from there. Well, obvious answer. Wikipedia will tell you that he's going to go and do the Dirty Dozen remake, which I'm actually excited for <laughs> because I I I I don't know. I have a feeling that having having this guy do do an, a a war film that's not historically uh, because it's supposed to be modern day that's not sort of historically bound by sort of the requirements of the period might be kind of fun like I'm, i don't know having him to having him work with a bigger budget is, is is always is always nice a nice idea in my in my books but it almost looks like he will do this sort of little departure and then he'll just rev almost reflexively crawl back into his comfort zone and do another one of those like he's, he's going to do that instead of a tax collector there's going to be i don't know he's, he's going to figure, figure something out there but it's going to be about gangsters it's going to be about you know the, the bloods and the cribs and whatever because that's that's where he feels at home and that's a valid criticism to make because you know if you always reside in your comfort zone comfort zone you're not really going to see the world and and you're literally just one film away from being pigeonholed and i, I can see that but from a very sort of selfish point of view, I would say I'm okay with him, with him being pigeonholed as the sort of genre B-movie grindhouse of the 80s guy because no one else is making movies like this and I really like them. So at least if he makes them and he makes a little bit of money on the side doing, doing this, I'm fine because at least once every three years I'll have a, like a little, little celebration of cheesy, violent cinema to kind of just, you know, to rock on to. It's pretty hard to follow you up, Jakob, because like, yeah, like if you have a genuine reaction to this type of movie and you enjoy it, like that's completely valid. Like I'm not going to be an asshole who's like, oh, you're, you know, oh, this is shit. You can't like it. Like, I think it just comes down to like fundamentally, like this is a type of film that I don't necessarily like these, you know, action movies anyway. Um, and it just failed to engulf me in any way. But like, yeah, if you have a connection to these types of films, you're probably going to like it. So it's hard for me to like articulate like there's nothing I can say to change your mind because like just fundamentally this is something you would like and I'm just not going to like. 
Um, so like I can say like, oh, wish it had a better visual style, wish it had better characters, wish it had a deeper screenplay, but like ultimately that's not what David Ayer was clearly going for. And for audiences who, you know, don't necessarily need those things, like this is gonna be fine. So I find it hard to like, I can't say anything to change your mind because like I don't, you know, it's not my job to change your mind. If you enjoyed it, great. So I can just say like my opinion, I think it's extremely boring, just uninteresting, not worth the time at all. But like, if you like it, more power to you. The one thing I'll add, just not to end on a cynical note as well, and to try find a positive for myself is that I think that George Lopez here is actually really good as David's um, uncle. I think he plays against type as his comedic um, nature in, in other films. I think he's very 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 unsubtle here and i and i think it works for the most part i think he's he's very eerie he's enigmatic but he but he has this sort of very overly strong screen presence for me where it was the one thing i, I came away from thinking yeah yeah george robus's character was hard as nails and if that's it, it's, it's a positive it's also a negative because ultimately if i'm thinking a background character is ultimately the uh most strongest you know uh evo- character who evokes this sort of mood and the main two leading actors fail to sort of capture that. I, I, I just find that the films on its, on its, well, it's also like second guessing itself as well. I mean, uh, again, I don't want to go too hard on, on air, but I think regardless of what happens after this, I think ironically enough, I'll probably be on the same page as you, Yaka, but I'll, I'll still be there for whatever 30 dozen film he makes, but I probably will come back for a, for a, um, a very small independent take because I think that he's still got something. He's definitely a really interesting director. He he makes the minute and, and the intimate deadly in, in a very small, uh, ba- um, you know, social backgrounds. And it's an interesting thing to have. But I think moving on from, from uh, you know, you dying on that hill, I think we should move on to a film about, you know, a group of characters dying in a ditch. Let's move on next to Blackwater Abyss. <laughs> An adventure-loving couple convince their friends to explore a remote, uncharted cave system in the forests of northern Australia. With a tropical storm approaching, they abseil into the mouth of the cave, but when the caves start to flood, tensions rise as oxygen levels fall and their friends then find themselves trapped. Again, I'll start this one, having reviewed it for the, uh, for the website. I think this may be my most... I don't want to say that, that, that I went into... I, I'll just start by this. First and foremost, I'm going to defend a creature feature against anyone else. I really, really enjoy this trend of having a monster in a film and just letting that just take precedent. That, to me, is generally a form of cinema, regardless of the actual 
end product, I'll sit in my seat, I'll pay that ticket, I'll shut the fuck up and I'll watch it and then I can make comments afterwards because I paid that ticket. I'm a big fan of, of, of King Kong, Peter Jackson's. I like, I like, I like the Jordan Vogue Roberts thing, uh, Kong Skull Island. I like Godzilla, Gareth Edwards thing. I also like um, Kong, well, I, I like Kong, uh, you know, not Kong, sorry, Godzilla uh, monsters thing. <laughs> um, I like the Meg. I, I'm into this sort of shit. I, I, I like stuff like this. I like Deep Blue Sea. I like Alien. It all comes from the same thing. So going into this, I was sort of already on the back burner of, of sort of wanting to enjoy it. And believe it or not, it sort of lived up to its expectations for me about 70% of the film. Um, for the most part, I, I genuinely really enjoyed this. Um, I think this is clearly a director, Andrew Tra- uh, Trauke, I believe that's pronounced. Um, he, he always retells the story. He directed The Reef. He directed the predecessor of this, which is interesting because I didn't know this was a sequel. I don't think you have to know this is a sequel um, for any connection. You just sort of got to know the plot. And I think it's so fundamentally obvious what happens here. You don't need to know any sort of mythology and law. But I think this director sort of likes making these films. And I think like Aya, weirdly enough, if, if, if a director usually goes back to the well, it often means that they're comfortable here, that, that you're going to get something strong. You're going to get something at least watchable. And, and for the most part, I, I was actually more so surprised this, this was a decent little one-setting horror tale of a, a monster movie. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's generic. It's, it's, a, it's a horror thriller, but it's pleasing. It's entertaining. But again, I'm just going to preference this. 70%. Keep that in mind, the 70% two and a half two thirds and i'll get on to that little minute because i've got a lot to say about it's sort of last third again granted this does nothing new whatsoever it's it's full of convention but if anything i think it actually strongly doubles down in what works it's very the characters work i mean the the performances are relatively good here i mean there's enough depth to care about each character arc especially like the human element of deceit and 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 animosity and, and and, and hatred when it, it, human nature sort of collides in survival. He, <coughs> excuse me, here, I, I, I thought it worked for the most part. I mean, that it's interesting to see how that element rots the core dynamic of the group. And I think it gets to a point, like I said, it gets to that two third mark where I'm finding it really interesting to see where it goes because ultimately I'm watching a film about four characters falling apart and it happens to have a crocodile in. And then, that two thirds ends and then we get something else. And for me, it just all fell apart to a point where I felt like for the most part, and I don't like using star ratings at all, but just for, for frame of reference, this was like a three, a strong three star film for me. And ultimately, I'm sorry to say it, it just drastically went onto the other side of just a pure one. Um, this is a creature feature. And with that, I think there's an expectation of gore. And I think this film demands that. And I just don't think it gives the audience that whatsoever. There's positives, there's negatives. I think to that extent, I think the film is quite restrained and and, and, fair, and fair enough. I mean, if you don't want to highlight the, the, the actual genre convention, I can appreciate that because obviously it's done to death, like I've said. Um, but I think taking the, the Jaws stance by not showing the monster is one thing, but completely avoiding indulging the audience that's something else that just didn't sit well with me. I, I, I was sort of waiting for that moment where I, did, I didn't want, I, I don't want something like, um, you know, a Megalodon version of, of a crocodile to turn up and it's like fucking four bus lengths long. I don't want something excessive, but I just want to see something where 
you know, we really know that 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 pan French, but I've asked one quite a few times actually anyway. But um, I want to see shit go down, and I want to see it excessively done at one point. I, if I'm if I'm witnessing character, I want that characters to, to to be engulfed by this trauma, and I want it to be heightened, and I want it to, to not to be elevated because I don't think you can elevate. Well, can you? I don't know. I don't think you can elevate the material. But regardless. It's just a film that on its final end and, and you think the film ends and it goes on for another nine minutes and it just, it's so fucking tedious. And it's just, it writes this character, these characters like they're idiots. But if they can survive this for so long and get to that point, I would just, I, would, I thought they were just oblivious. And I think the screenplay, it just writes in a third power punch. And we've spoken about on this podcast a lot about films needing that punch at the end. This is an example of not what to do. Um, one more thing that, that didn't sit me well with me was I don't think the opening was very appropriate. I mean, the two Japanese tourists were so t- stereotypical. Um, it just it didn't open the film for me very well. It, 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 I sort of had to get back on board after about seven minutes. So this film sort of broke my heart twice almost. I mean, having two Japanese characters go speaking Japanese to each other and in English just to get to the point. I felt was slightly um, unneeded if they would have spoke Japanese and they wouldn't have been so stereotypical in, in their approach. I think it would have worked a lot better and, and, and help, um, heightened the atmosphere. But that being said, huge fan of, of, of uh, monster movies. This, unfortunately, just didn't live up to expectation whatsoever. So I also didn't know that this was a sequel, but before I checked this out to be you know, a good person on the podcast, I went ahead and checked out the original And I think that's probably the worst thing I could have done when it came to judging Blackwater Abyss. Because in most ways, I feel like this film is just a lesser retelling of the first film. There are some things I greatly appreciate about the series. I think there are multiple fake outs that are really subtle where it plays with your expectations, where a character will be right near, you know, like the water and you're expecting a crocodile to jump out and get someone, but they don't do that. And I think that's an effective form of building tension. Um, And I think the actual setting of being inside a cave It works decently nicely. It's pretty claustrophobic compared to the first film where they were stuck in like a mangrove forest and they were up in the trees surrounded by water. It's a very different film in that aspect and I think it works overall well. Um, But then there were just bizarre choices like the characters, some of which are just like weird knockoffs off of films from the first or characters from the first film. Uh, they make another the character one of the characters pregnant again like it was just very strange how this film decided just to be a retelling of the first film in some ways and that didn't really work for me um but i think where this film dies is just the effects for the crocodiles and in the first film it was okay wasn't great wasn't terrible uh here they just edit in like random footage of crocodiles like jumping at the camera and it just it looks fucking abysmal um and i think just overall the film like it is a perfectly fine cheaper creature flick um i also appreciate the genre a decent amount um it's nothing special has its boring moments um and just the effects are terrible but when it comes to the setup um the actual setting the film takes place in and some of the moments of building tension where it feels like something's going to happen um, only for it not to happen. I found it to be pretty effective in that sense. Um, but overall, unforget or pretty forgettable and just a general step down compared to the first film. Oi, again. <laughs> this is where we are again. This is another hill I'm going to die on. Because, you know, I'm kind of like Jack in this regard. Jaws is one of my favorite films. Shit, like, scratch that. My, Jaws is my favorite film. End of story. And um, 
creature features, animal attack films, piranha, the birds. If it's about crocodile, a, a bear, a dog, a snake, anything. Give me more of that. I'll, I'll, ha I'll have fun with that. Anaconda, I saw it in the cinema when I was, I don't know, a child. Blew my mind. But <laughs> yeah, didn't see any of the sequels. But um, <laughs> like the Meg, I'll, I'll, I'll watch any of this. And like, funnily enough, I also watched the first, because I also found out, actually from Carson, it's like, oh yeah, by the way, this is a sequel. Now listen, let me see if I can watch the first one. And lo and behold, it was on Amazon Prime. So do you know what I did? I watched it. And then um, funnily enough, fun fact, if, if, if you're interested, it was released in 2007. And it's not, and it's one, not one, but two Australian creature features about a crocodile released in the same year. The other one being Doug McLean's Rogue. By the way, I don't know if you've seen that one. It's not the best. Um, and, but it also stars very young Sam Worthington and very young Mia Vashikovska, which is quite fun. Um, because they clearly needed money. <laughs> and, but that one is about like a massive sort of overgrown chemical spill-induced crocodile that just hunts people and just eats them whole. Um, and, and, and this is like the, the, the first one at least is, is, is a whole different thing. Um, and I have to say, I had I, again, I had quite a lot of of fun watching this to a point. When the first one, there there is this whole idea of the king tide um, being sort of mentioned in the scripts because these two women are stuck in a tree, and then in order to increase the agency, uh, to give so sort of, get some stakes, it, at least you'd like to you know them to kind of just get out of this tree for some reason. So like having a tide come in would be a good idea, but it doesn't really happen. Um, in in this in, in in Blackwater Abyss, on the other hand, like the uh, sort of script level nonsense is kind of what Jack touched Jack touched upon, which is kind of introducing the sort of second layer of drama in the, into a film that doesn't really need it. I mean, it's fine if you have some for, something for the characters to talk about, but they are honestly they are just hunks of meat for the uh, uh, crocodile to pick off one by one and people for you to to try and figure out which one's the final girl because it's always going to be a girl that's just that's the convention so almost the last 10 minutes is kind of unneeded in the, in this regard but i, I will say and, and and i will also go to bat for the special effects because contrary to what you would probably ex expect in 2020 and even in 2007 the first one there's there's zero, almost zero cgi involved in there it's all either practical effects either you know like Fake, shark, fake crocodiles, almost said sharks, um, or um, stock footage. And the suspense generation is kind of what drew me to this, what kind of just gave me more, more, more sort of enjoyment out of this because it kind of relies on the same sort of principle as um, 47 meters down relies upon, which is the um, idea of when you think about water being a translucent medium, it's not really like if you, you look, you think I look you, when you're inside in underwater and then you think, oh, you're look, looking quite far out. You're not really, you're looking like half a meter in front of you and that's pretty much all you see. So this is why it's easy to generate suspense and scares because things can come at you from all angles and you won't see them until they're right in your face. And that's kind of utilized quite well in here. In the first one, it's kind of just the, the sort of different sort of physical property of water is kind of utilized because you, without polarizing, polarizing lenses, you can't see what's in, in the water when you're not in it uh, either. So that's kind of, you know, this is why the sort of water gets so scary. That's the sort of Jaws principle of this. And 
it does capitalize on this and it does work on a sort of fundamental level as a sort of bare bones genre film about a, a hungry crocodile stuck in a cave with five people who may have some form of a little relationship relationship drama going on about them and it kind of works and and that's all this needs like this doesn't have to be citizen Kane. like the, to me this the this, this doesn't even have to subvert the expectations. This doesn't have to be Jaws. This doesn't have to be the birds. I'm, I'm happy with the crocodile eating four out of five people and one of them surviving and killing the crocodile at the end. That's it. And I'm, and I'll, and I'm happy when this sort of, when the film kind of gets there without too much hassle. Unfortunately, there is hassle on the way and then it kind of just gets bogged down in the drama. And then this is where, no, I don't want to say went off the rails for me, um, I, I would say that the the ending ten minutes, I would I would love I, I would I would happily excise and for lack of a better without spoiling too much f finish the film on this original point and it, but I will I will defend certain things I will defend that the scares are nice and they and they kind of just are well I won't say they're original but they're effective say so in the first one there's an um, Carson you've you've seen the first one recently. There's a very interesting shot where you see the two women that are um, in the front and they're out of focus and water's in focus and the kind of crocodile just kind of just pops up in, in between them. And you have like a five second sort of pause to generate the dread because you know something's going to happen but doesn't happen. And this is a very interesting sort of directorial choice in my view. And that kind of shows that as far as this guy is only interested in staying in his comfort zone of animal attack films. At least he knows what he's doing. And then si similar sort of thing is in this film where you have a character looking with a flashlight um, for a crocodile in underwater and eventually you just see a, a, just a, a mouth opening and closing and then nothing else, I mean, just, it disappears. And that's, and, and that's enough for you to kind of just get on board with it because like, you know, like, Okay, now it's now it's certain there's a crocodile in there and something's gonna happen. And it doesn't really happen for a long while, but the, the fifteen to twenty seconds is genuine suspense and of, of the Hitchcockian kind. And I really love this sort of idea of a, a filmmaker at least knowing the principles of what he's dealing with and in just giving me entertainment, even of the lowest sort, because it's let's be honest, this is not Jaws. This is at best Jaws too. Um but it kind of works. Like I'm, if I have to die on this hill, if if this is another one of those things, yeah, I'm, I I like Blackwater Abyss, and I'm I'm not gonna tattoo this on my back, but um, I'll, I'll I'll happily give this a positive review, and I'll happily happily recommend it to another nut like me who actually loves creature features and loves these animal attacks. I was sort of slightly worried going into this though, because I think any sort of creature feature sequel does very little to, to sort of capture the magic. I mean, you look at The Fly and The Fly Two. And as of late, we've had 47 meters down and we, then we've had 47 meters down uncaged. And I think there's sort of this trend where it's just like the quintessential sequel where they have to outdo each other. And I just don't think that it, it gels very well because I think in these type of circumstances, restraint is always the one thing where it, it will it ultimately elevates the material. It, it definitely heightens it because th there's more of that at stake. I think the first 47 meters down is, is quite genius of how it sort of looks at genre convention. And granted, it does sort of go down that route once again in its final act. But nevertheless, I still think it's an inter interesting um, 
little horror film and its sequel, much like this. And all, like, granted, this is speaking out of turn because I haven't seen the first Black Water. But again, from what you said, I, I think I may have probably just seen the film in a different light anyway. Um, but it's this factor of you, you can change the setting and you, you but the characters, that dynamic still remains. And I just don't think that's enough. And I think you can add a bit of CGI to it, add a bit of, uh, you know, aesthetic and, and, and glare and here and there and, and, and make something look more desirable but at the end of the day if you don't have those characters that work and you don't have an organic nature to it i think it falls flat i think that the ending of 47 meters down from cage is, is generally barbaric i think it's ridiculous beyond belief and, and i think it just excessively goes the step that almost what piranha did although piranha within its with its tone and i think that's a really good really great example of when it's done really well where you take a property that's laughed at and you sort of subvert that expectations for Haha, you're laughing with us, not at us now. And I think it's a problem that Baywatch failed to do. And it's an issue with comedy, but don't get me off track there. But the more I think about Blackwater Abyss and how you talk about it, Jacob, and again, how you talked about the tax collector, I most definitely get it. I really do. I just think that with this film, it just doesn't go that extra step of, of, of being restrained when it needs to, knowing when to end, and also knowing that you don't have to elongate a film to an hour and 35 minutes to make it interesting. Cut that off at 70 minutes, cut it off at 80 minutes. As long as the material there and, and the substance is there, you don't really have to worry about the excessiveness. But again, it, it's just one film that sort of really annoys me because this year I went, I went to go see Underwater by Christian Stewart. And that's just something, I just love that sort of stuff where, you know, you, you get this mystery element and there's definitely a creature feature involved, but with a really strong actress who keeps you involved. And here, it's working every, against type on every level. And I think it does achieve what it wants to do. And I think, I think even speaking about this, I think I don't think I'll go too harsh of, of my opinion. I think I'll probably just reevaluate things about it. But I, again, I just think that, Maybe I expected something a little bit more from this. And I think maybe that's just me personally looking for something a little bit more entertaining and enjoyable rather. Maybe I was looking for something a little bit more elevated than this. And maybe that's just like, again, I have to sort of go back and see particularly what the film is, not what I wanted it to be. I find it interesting because that's one of the elements from both the Blackwater films that I actually appreciate the most is how grounded it is and how like, it doesn't go that extra step that a lot of these types of films take where, yo, there's some, you know, special underground shark or mutated, you know, like it's a pretty grounded film that I like the fact that it's based in reality. The fact that there's just crocodiles or multiple crocodiles, you know, depending on what you're watching and they're just there and they just have to, you know, very simple goal. You have to just get out of the cave. You know, you have to survive in these trees and the water's rising. I think that simplified take on the genre works quite well. Um, because it helps to keep the film grounded, which then makes it also more scary. It makes the tension more realistic, makes the situation more realistic. You can relate to the characters more. Is I just wish that they had better characters. I think that's just what it comes down to for me, at least, is the fact that everything about the situation and the animals, other than the effects, works really, really well for me. It's just the fact that the characters are so annoying and uninteresting and boring that really makes the film overall just fall down the rankings when it comes to like, oh, the animals attack genre. Um, but I actually do like the groundedness of the story and the plot and the crocodiles and all that. I mean, I will actually agree with this. Not, not actually. I will agree with this. The characters are what's lacking in here because 
I I'll have fun with a crocodile any day of the week. And then, I, 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 honest to God, I, I was I wasn't really expecting too much, you know, out of a film that has a colon in the title. Like that's already an a, a, that's a bad sign. You see some you see something like this. Like there should be a moratorium on colons in the in the titles anyway. That you 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 know you're looking at something that that's at best derivative. It's fine. <laughs> um, but you've touched upon something very interesting with what you latch onto, Carson, which is the characters. And this is exactly in horror films specifically. This is what separates, I mean, apart from the idea of um, subverting the expectations of the template, um, this, is the part, this is the bit that separates the um, horror films that are at best good and ones that have a chance of being great. Say, so if you imagine what's, what's the difference between, like I don't want to say between this and Jaws because there's more than one, but on a fundamental level, what you, what you remember about Jaws is Roy Shadow's character. You remember Quint. Even the, his kids you remember, like even faces you, like of, of sort of extras you remember because the characters kind of stand out. Where it, when you think it comes to like slasher films, there are ones that you don't care about. I don't know. Can you name a single character from like Friday the, the 13th? Even the first one. Probably unlikely apart from, uh, you know, the villain, I suppose. Even that it's not the villain. Spoiler. Um, um, but if you think about, say, Halloween, which is widely considered as, I don't know, a, a staple of the genre, you can always latch on to, say, Jamie Lee Curtis' character because she is a standout. She is some, someone you, what you identify with. She's the sort of person you latch on to and then you kind of hang on onto her shoulder because she's, for the most part, likable. She's someone you can uh, project onto. And if if that person, same goes with like Ellen Ripley in Alien. One of the reasons this 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 film succeeds is because Ripley kind of comes from like well she she's not even first credited in the film. Tom Skerritt is the, is the top billing in the film, but she kind of comes out of nowhere and then you just um, immediately just associate yourself with her because she's she's a commanding presence on screen and and just you just get get well tag along on the, on, on this journey. I will give you that. That so, Blackwater Abyss doesn't really have that. It has a bunch of people who are who are sort of paper thin characters with paper thin drama written written for them. Um, they're supposed to kind of pretend that they're that they're characters in a way, but it's fine because at the end of, at the end of the day, well, you could say, okay, well, this is a film that's never going to, it never had a chance of being great. It's at best good, and then the only sort of not against this sort of, well, not perfection, but goodness, is its ending that it kind of just, almost as though the filmmakers remembered when they, I don't know, went through the script and said, oh yeah, shit, we need to um, sort this sort of blooming tension between these two characters, I need to figure this one out now. So we need to spend 10 minutes on a tangent about, about, which, about this, which is almost weirdly su suspenseful in a way when they get to the car. But it doesn't go anywhere. It's kind of just disposed, disposed with because it's like, oh yeah, but by the way, we still have a crocodile to deal with. It's kind of, it almost feels as though everyone on the set were, was ready to wrap at 70 minute mark. And then they realized, uh, we got a quite, a, quite a lot of loose ends. And by the way, we haven't killed the crocodile yet. So uh, we just need to get back in there and film the rest of it. It kind of just feels disjoint in a way. So I can I can give you that, but even with this sort of stupid ending, that I honestly, 
I held my head head in my in my hands like this, just wondering, oh, this is gonna go very, very badly, very, very soon, because the film's just losing quality as it goes along. I wouldn't go as far as just go to all the way down to one star, but but I was kind of trepidatious, so to speak. <laughs> but I I still when the credits rolled, I was thinking, yeah, good time. That's all I asked for. It's it's a sequel. It's not it's not the greatest film in the world, but you know what? I had a I had a I had a nice evening. Thank you. That was good. And then um, if he makes a third one, probably watch it too. I want to just direct this at you, Jakub, because I think you're more so, you will, you more so like the film that the, the me and Carson did. But I just think it's interesting to, to, to sub this out and I'd, I'd like to, to hear your, your thoughts on it as well, uh, Carson. Do you think this film lacks star power? Do you think it lacks that young actress, up and coming screen queen? Because as much as I quite like the performances, there's no really standout quality there. I mean, even with 47 Meters Down, you've got Kareen Fox as Jamie Fox's daughter. You've got Sistine Rose Stallone, which is Sylvester Stallone's daughter. And I understand both of those are horrible examples because, again, they're nepotism at its finest. But, you know, I mean, you, you just spoke about Halloween and, and, and an alien. And those films, again, <laughs> there's sort of a running theme here. Both nepotism. They both come from very well, um, uh, well, quite rich, uh, well-respected acting backgrounds. But do, do you find that the sort of quintessential scream queens really lacking here? Because the more we think about it, well, the more we think about. Sorry, that's me. My my other person next to me. The more I think about it, I find that this film just lacks that central female lead, and that's nothing uh, bad about the two female characters in it because I think they're they're very interesting, but they're sort of written in a way where that it's like quintessential female problems. And I think it's sort of, it's slightly, I'm not going to say like it's, it's distasteful or anything like that. I just think that there's, there's, there's writing convention and then there's writing stereotypical convention. And I think it falls into the latter. I think that there's no one here. And again, does that fall into the restraint factor that Carson was talking about? Maybe it's going to be interesting to hear, to hear your thoughts on the Carson. But I just found that having two female characters defined by their um in, in the story nevertheless by, by their gender um i just felt like it, the film really sort of needed that all empowered female voice in the film and, and i don't really think it it's there for me i agree but i wouldn't use the word star power because it's not the fact that there aren't like big names in the movie it's gonna be a weird comparison but i go back to the hunt from earlier this year and how that film was led by this, you know, not necessarily a big actress she's been in stuff, but Betty Gilpin did an incredible job leading that film because she gave, in like, at least in my opinion, a truly iconic performance. I thought she carried that movie and it was a great showcase for her and her natural charisma. If someone in this film had that natural charisma and just that star power, even, well, star power, again, not saying their rank and, you know, acting, but just in quality. Even if the writing wasn't necessarily great, I think we would be able to latch onto that character more if they just had a more powerful and you know iconic delivery. Um, so I think, yes, that is probably one of the main issues. But I think, I mean, I, I don't even really like the writing in The Hunt, to be clear. But like, I think the act, that actor did such a good job in that film where that captivated the audience and made you suck into, you know, get sucked into the film in some form. This film undoubtedly lacked that. So I agree with you, uh, Jack. Yeah, I'll echo this comment in in a way because I don't think a film like this needs star power per se. Um, it needs charisma. You can either get charisma from the act, natural talent of the of the actress or actor, or you can you can kind of sort of impart it directorially and 
and then put it in sort of in inject it into the script with that regard i kind of just i could point you to ready or not which is last last year one of the last year's sort of surprises for me because like let's just say okay it's a gimmicky sort of slasher film but one thing i i came away with was the leading the the, called the final girl um i had to google her name because i remember her face but i'm I'm bad with names her name is samara weaving she was an absolute standout in my in, in my mind in term in terms of well how she handled well have, bearing the entire film on her on her on her shoulders. In in here you don't we don't necessarily need that because you have an ensemble. This is this is not about one character making through this thing. In fact, there is quite a few of them until I want to say very last minute. So they they're not picked off very early on. The problem. Okay, so when you have an ensemble cast, you don't really need star power per se. You don't need you, you don't need a big name, or you need you don't need the, the sort of even you don't need the sort of big charismatic sort of up and coming honcho sort of big shot uh, character. You can have them be sort of paper thin and stenciled as as long as they gel together as a group, so that you care for the group, and then you care every single time someone gets picked up. You care that they that they get picked up. I think that's. That, that's that's fine and then i could say yes this is where the sort of writing here shows shows it's sort of the weaker side because it doesn't really have that however it makes up for this with the director's sort of command of the setting because he's clearly put his eggs in one basket in here in that he he wants to generate suspense and he wants to use the setting of the cave with the sort of murky waters and then the the idea of not knowing where the crocodile is at any until it's literally biting your arm off and then using this to his advantage kind of sort of like the 47 meters down did with sharks and then you could argue that this has been overused in a way and then sort of all the other aspects of the story have been orphaned in, as a result but to me this does not sort of um, cancel out the uh, the enjoyment I get from participating in this sort of suspenseful experiment of sitting underwater with people who have no idea that there's a crocodile run in front of them. It would have enriched it. And this is where this... So the director's sort of notes and his writing, because I think he wrote it as well, would have helped. Or maybe he didn't write it. Maybe he wrote the first one. I can't remember now. But that that's pretty much coming back to my original point of, okay, this film can at best be good and it kind of is good but it because it kind of fails on what you've just said it, it's never going to be great and I'm, I'm well i'm fine with not watching great movies every day well i think we can all agree that it's not a shark night 3d but moving on from one horror to another let's look at the host have you ever done anything like this before? I've never done this over Zoom. Obviously, we're not physically together, but there's no reason why Spirit can't communicate over the internet. Nothing's going to happen. Visualize us sitting in a circle. Spirit, we invite you to use us to pass on any communication. Is there anyone there? Please come forth. What was that? Amy, was that you? I heard it. I heard something. I think there's something here. Do you see that? Six friends hire a medium to hold a seance via Zoom during lockdown, but they get far more than they bargain for as things quickly go wrong. 
Jakob, let's start with you. I don't, want, I don't want to continue on this trend of being pleasantly surprised, but I was kind of pleasantly surprised with this because as much as I, well, in addition to liking B-movies from the 90s and 80s and animal creature features, I'm, I kind of have a soft spot for fan footage films when they're done kind of right. Um, and then in, in the simplest terms, this is best summarized as unfriended, but made in quarantine. And that's pretty much what it is. In, start to finish there's no aspiration to do anything special in here apart from maybe um using some very inventive special effects to kind of just bolster the experience but it is by, by the numbers found footage films with all its problems like logistical and logical problems which we, we might or might not get into later on but at its fundamental level it is a it's, a, it's an entertaining sort of horror <laughs> that doesn't overstay its welcome. In fact, it barely kind of makes its welcome. Like it's, it's done, with, it's barely a feature. Like it, I, I think it would fit in onto two reels if it, if it was actually done on film. So, so it's tight, it's to the point, and it kind of just does its job and then kind of just picks its moment to, uh, to scare you in a, I don't want to say inventive ways, but um, effective ways. Because you kind of anticipate what's going to happen, where the scares are going to come from, and they do come from expected places, but they come, um, but they kind of just at the last minute they kind of zag when you think they're going to zig, if that makes any sense. And that, to me, this is also a mark of someone who, uh, as a filmmaker, who knows what they're doing with the material they have. They don't want to overstep their mark. They don't want to kind of just work beyond their remit in a way, and it works. And it kind of just, it, it, it jives in a way. It, it, it's a fun film that you can just throw on uh, almost as you, like, if, if you're really pushing it, you can watch it on the bog. Like, that's, that's how short it is. Yeah, it's an, it, it's an, it's an effective little, little thing that kind of just, again, doesn't have much star power because it kind of looks like it's just done with a, by a bunch of friends on, on an absolute minimum zero budget of zero dollars, right? And it just, you know, provides cheap entertainment at a cheap cost, doesn't ask you too much to, in terms of your cerebral um, engagement. And, it, you know, it, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit of fun on a Sunday night, which is basically why I, when I watched it. So I, I, can't, I can't fault it for anything apart from maybe, well, sort of logical aspects of why is it a found footage film? Who found the footage? It's a Zoom call once you close it it's gone like unless it's been hacked by by russians like like some people on the bbc once once reported they uh, they had the pleasure of having but but yeah it, it's a decent enough sort of i want to say like um, unfriended 2.0 even though that one had a had a sequel on its own it kind of just works where it works and, and just it's fundamentally entertaining yeah, because finally we can say during this podcast that we were both pleasantly surprised with one of these films. I had a really good time with Host. I was so worried going in for multiple reasons. Anytime there's a film with such a clear gimmick, like being uh, taking place on Zoom, we talked about it last week with Spree. It is very iffy on quality normally. Um, and plus, after Homemade, which I wasn't on the podcast, but due to all the glorious recommendations from all of you on the podcast, um, watched Homemade on Netflix, and it was an absolute shit show. So the idea of people making stuff during quarantine wasn't necessarily the most um, inspiring idea going into the film. 
but I thought this was really solid. I thought it felt shockingly natural, both from a technical side, but also with the characters and the dialogue. It didn't feel like a film trying to be natural or relatable, but rather it just felt like it was a genuinely capturing these events, which is really hard to do in any horror film, much less one to take place over Zoom. Uh, some of the characters definitely feel a bit annoying at places, but due to the shorter runtime, I mean, this is an easy film to get through. It might not be revolutionary as far as horror or jump scares or anything like that. Um, but I was pleasantly, you know, as a, someone who's not also just not generally a fan of horror films, pleasantly surprised by this one. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I'm also going to join the bandwagon of saying I'm pleasantly surprised. But I think I, I'm, I'm more so of that. And, and just to give it a quick backstory, to say I, det- I detest this aesthetic would be an understatement. And I think the films that are, that are probably going to be um, spoken about uh, after, after my comment I make are probably the films that, that I, I generally detest it for. I hate Unfriended. I hate Unfriended Dark Web. I like Searching because I think it, it's interesting how it sort of documents that uh, murder investigation. Spree, I've got mixed thoughts on, although I do like the aesthetic. I think that it's far too jarring. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not keen on this. I think it's far too gimmicky for its own good at times. That being said, going into this with the lowest expectation possible for the reasons I've just mentioned, not only was I pleasantly surprised, I think this might be one of my favorite horror films of this year. For every reason, Carson, you've just mentioned, I second that, but I also... I, I can't speak even more highly enough about it. I think the, the the dynamic between all these characters is so organic and natural. It generally did feel like I was watching something I was a part of. It felt like I was that that extra extra person within that that social group. I thought the dynamic was was interesting. Each separate character had something to add. They had they had they had. They had in the limited amount of time that the director actually showcases a story, which for 56 minutes is a genius. Like this didn't need to be an hour and a half. So to get it at 56 minutes and under an hour, I think is, is generally amazing how they fit the, the three X structure in there. I think it's incredibly well done. I hope this isn't considered a short film. I do hope that, that, that people out there are considering this a feature film. I think it deserves that. I would, really like to see this done um on a cinema screen but the problem is it, it works ironically enough we're using zoom during this video call so it, it sort of elevated that thing where i was like shit i actually use that and to get the branding from zoom is genius it's very often that you get to really see something like that i mean apple are very scared of putting villains uh, with the iphone in the, in the in the same picture so for zoom to have a collaboration with shudder on this genius business uh, side of that is, is generally something to behold but yeah i think it like like jacob said you, you you can look at this and you can tear it apart like it's on a zoom call we know after this zoom call this so we're recording this it, it does sort of you know I, I i guess you can sort of pick holes in it but but nevertheless i think it's just so interesting how this was done and how exceptionally crafty it was there's nothing much that actually happens here and it reminds me of um Death of a Vlogger that, that I reviewed at Fright Fest all the way back in March almost by Graham, um, I believe it's Graham Hughes. And it's this sort of Fox documentary, mockumentary, if you will, about someone who is getting, <coughs> excuse me, who is getting haunted. But it's sort of subverted expectations of found footage vlogs 
where this character is trying to make you think that he is and then he actually does in a weird twist of fate. This is thought the higher end budget to that. And I think while Death of a Vlog is really well done, I think this is exceptional. Um, I can't speak highly enough of this. I think, again, I think the production standpoint is generally incredibly immersive. You cannot take your eyes off it quite literally because it's engulfed in your face on screen. I watched this on a television. I would be haunted to watch this on an iPad. I would be haunted to watch this on my my my, my um, computer screen. And there's a really famous David Fincher quote, and I, I'm I'm going to be so hyperbolic here, but bollocks to it. I'm going to have to do it. Jacob, you've had your time. It's mine now. Let 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 let's let's piss a few people off. David Fincher once said that the the reason why, and again, to talk about creature features, why Jaws is so good and why it's Steven Spiel's masterpiece is because when it's done, you don't want to step back in the water. And it defied a generation of people not wanting to go knee deep in any water, even the bathtub, in case of being attacked by a shark. And I think this, believe it or not, will do the exact same thing for a new generation. And to that standard, and while, yes, I'm being hyperbolic, I truly do think this is a defining moment, not only in what we can achieve within the horror genre, but how wonderfully restrained and executed it can be. I mean, to 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 respond to your hyperbole, I'm, I, I wouldn't be that optimistic about this kind of just in, impacting on this generation, the way Jaws did in the in the seventies. <laughs> for 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 I don't know for a little simple reason that. If people don't know, or first, people don't take cinema that seriously these days, that's first and foremost. But on another note, this is where, okay, well, we've disposed with the praise. So now I can just kind of start, you know, I put my arm on the white hat on and then just picking this thing apart because, you know, I can't, I can't be in the same, on, on the same side as Jack, as we've established. Right. So, <laughs> no, no, but the, so the main reason why, why it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's one of those things that, in my mind, are at best good and not great, even though it kind of just has all the makings of something like this. Is because it kind of just it feeds into this sort of aesthetic, which is absolutely tired now. Like as you mentioned, like well, you know, you're not a fan of found footage films. I have my sort of favorites in there, like I don't know, first three I think Paranormal Activities are fine. Blair Witch Project is absolutely amazing. However, they're not really sort of rewatchable in a way. So I could watch Jaws any day of the week and you couldn't stop me. Like this thing I watched once and I'm done. Thank you. I'm like I could watch The Exorcist. So if, and you no, know, I could I could I could start it immediately after finishing, maybe with a bathroom break. But this doesn't like, found footage films don't do this for me this way. They're sort of like the like the modern sort of media or the sort of they respond to sort of modern needs of the sort of Gen Z sort of viewers, which is this is not art, this is content. So you you take it, you ingest it, you consume it, you shit it out, done. Next, and that's it. Like there's very little, as much as I liked it, I, I don't think I'll ever rewatch it. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of disposable one-time experience for me. You can see it as a flaw. I don't, I don't really see it. I'm, like, I'm fine not watching something ever again, as long as I've had reasonably good time watching it. And, and this kind of did it for me. So, I wouldn't go as far as, as to call to call it you know, like the best of the year or at least the best genre film of the year because to me one of the criteria would be the idea of whether I want to see it again and that doesn't have, that doesn't have anything of that sort for me even though I I do agree with pretty much all of your comments both of your comments 
about you know like the characters are amazing it's all it's natural it's all good it's all sort of organic and it just doesn't feel forced it's kind of looks like it's not really scripted which is a very good thing for 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 a found footage film because it always kind of knocks the sort of realism out of the window when you when you feel like the uh, characters are kind of uh, acting against character in a way because they ha they're, they're they're working in service of the plot as opposed to in service of being in service of their own sort of um, motivations and that's 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 all here and here so these characters kind of behave very predictably for for them and uh, they just respond the way the characters would expect to be expected to respond it's fine however it it, it does have its issues like you know okay you, you can you can pick apart the aesthetic and it, it kind of on one or two occasions it does kind of just come into play by the end when things start happening around these houses and people go and check things out why the fuck would you take your laptop with you like you don't have to film this this is why <laughs> like why why are you just carrying your laptop in front of you i know why because you want me to see what's happening and then but it kind of just immediately just takes you out a little bit and there's and if there's too many of these it kind of just knocks you out completely fortunately it just kind of just treads the line in in my, in my opinion in this respect but um i, I, I wouldn't sing that high praise as you did to push back a bit on that point, because that's one of the issues I have with Spree, not to get too far into spoilers, but people filming and live streaming stuff that just naturally you wouldn't bother filming. With this one, I thought they did a pretty good job connecting Zoom to being a lifeline to like friends and to like connecting to others. And the idea you don't want to be alone as you're literally battling like a demon makes a lot of sense to me. So I actually thought in this film specifically, they did a good job justifying that, personally at least. Jakub, yeah, can't you just admit you were scared by it? Come on. Actually, was yeah. I mean, no, I know you were. No, no, that's that. To me, this this is good. Like, if 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 a horror film doesn't scare me, it's a shit horror film. Like, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> there's there's no, there's no way. There's no two ways around about it. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting point to raise because there's a lot of horror convention here, but it's not done in the way I sort of thought it would do. Because there is, there's no sort of this. I I fail to sort of remember if there's a jump scare in this. I can imagine there is. But for me, quite, I, quite it, a few actually, which is strange because if if and I'm, bear in mind, I'm a massive. I generally love this film. So if th that's me looking at it with either golden laced eyes or I was so engulfed by what I, what I saw, it didn't really matter to me that there was that sort of mundane genre convention involved. But I, but I found that I I think that with this type of film, I don't think you can go to the horror extent like a Conjuring, uh, a James one. I don't. You can explore theme and mood with the camera. I think it, it, I think that's why I praise this a lot more because I think every single motif and uh, element in, in filmmaking is against you by doing this because ultimately you do, you're defining yourself through that um, convention. Now, granted, if if you make your bed, you lie in it, and this is a film clearly that the filmmakers wanted to make. But nevertheless, I still think you've still got to sort of look at that material in question and look at it and say, look. We've seen this and from the, the films we've mentioned. How do we do something different? So we look at Zoom, which is, I mean, Searching did it with, with, sort of did it with Apple. So that's an interesting thing we can do. We can sort of relate back to, to our society there, right? Okay, interesting. Then how do we elevate it again? Well, let's not cut anywhere. Let's just stick to the, to the, to the people. And I think even more of those these small details. And again, Fred Dartweb does something very similar, Jacob. I, I will fully admit that. I think it, it's inescapable to watch. There isn't this 
third party story going on anywhere else. It's it's a really interesting dynamic. And I think I just think there should be credit where credit deserves with sort of owning what you have, but still finding room to sort of evolve that, if that makes any sense. But but again, I, c- I can understand what you mean. I mean, I like to be, I got, you've got to be hyperbolic once in a while. I mean, it, it keeps the, the blood flowing. But I just find that this is going to be a very interesting film because it's been eaten up at the moment by film Twitter. It's all over Twitter. So that's how I found out about it. Um, interesting enough, it is produced by Shudder, but I haven't heard anything on the Shudder front from it, which is interesting as well. I haven't seen anything advertised. And you would have thought within this generation, this would have been huge. Granted, Let's say, hypothetically, we weren't in this COVID-19 mess. I think that if Shudder would have released this, and again, it would have been because it would have been on streaming, so I'm just going to contradict myself here. But I think that this should have been an exclusive to watch on a certain type of media. You know, like when you, on Apple, you can get apps, but you can get an app for an, an iPad and an iPhone sometimes. Oh my God, Like I'm, I'm sounding like I'm 55 here. But Stay with me, people. You're here this far. I would have liked to have seen Shudder lock this in to watching it on a phone, to watching it into an iPad, to exercise those um, evolutions in an experimental film one step further than Soderbergh is doing. I think it would have found... Granted, would it have found a larger audience? No, but I think that that conversation is there. I think it's so, so long. Uh, sorry, so long. I think it's there in clumps to be like, wow, this is interesting. Should we be doing this with a Zoom aesthetic narrative filmed streaming, not streaming, recording? I don't know. Let me go again. I think, you know, granted, this could have gone down the road of, oh, wow, should I'm making this exclusive? You can only watch it on your iPad or iPhone themed Zoom film. But on the other hand, it then becomes, oh, wow, like, a zoom film wow like are we really going there is it a little bit too too soon for that and I, and again i just think that against all odds it's actually quite miraculous that this is at the standard it is so for me i, I can't applaud it enough but i do understand i do understand and fully accept its criticisms i mean i'll be perfectly honest with you if it wasn't for the pandemic this film never would have would have been made in the first place because well first of all if it wasn't for the pandemic zoom wouldn't be a company <laughs> Because, I mean, I, they existed before that, but they, they're one of the few peoples in the world, apart from maybe the head honchos in Tesco and whatever, you know, who you know, counted their billions after everyone raided supermarkets and, and Walmart, you know, for, for the, all the excess toilet paper that they're still going through. Zoom is one of the companies who just got massively, obscenely filthy rich over this because people have to work, people have to go to school, and then how, this is how, we, how you do it. So if, he, if, he, if, if the pandemic didn't happen, there is no logical premise for this film to exist because these people wouldn't be gathering over Zoom to have a seance. They would just get in a room and have one. And that will be a regular horror film. And that will be just, yeah, just a, oh, yeah, it, it's, it, it's basically a conjuring knockoff. We're going to possess something, whatever. I don't know. We're going to just summon a grandpa. And it turns out the grandpa is not a grandpa and, and it's an actual demon, whatever. That's it. And, and, no, and no one would ever hear about this. That's it, and probably this film wouldn't wouldn't have have been have been made in the first place. People would be saying like, "What? Why? Why do you want another umptium found footage film about about possession? Like we've got like hundred of them." So I think that the, I think know, that's the pandemic a, is what makes it. 
I no, think that's worry. a fair. I think that's a fair assessment, and I and I and I do appreciate that because ultimately this is a, in a product of its environment in a, in, a, in a strange way. I completely get that, but I think what Carson said earlier rings true about homemade. I think that even in the in the in the depths of despair, politically, socially, economically, film and art in itself does have this wonderful thriving nature to it where it will defy all odds and, and in homemade that is the whole point of trying to show that through um covid granted some of them are appalling and some of them are even worse than that but there are a few um where they're trying to tell, tell a story in the midst of those economical social and, and, and political pressures of what's happened to you this is not on the same level of trying to hit those themes, but still I think it's interesting to sort of think that within the space of what's happened, this film was made and granted, there's not really a lot that goes into it. There's, there's a lot of like editing to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to sort of in any way patronize whoever's put their time and effort into it because I think it's a wonderful job. But I think that within, in, in the context of how this has come about, I, 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 that, to be honest, even though I think that's a criticism of yourself, and not a criticism per se, but it's still a, an element, I think that ultimately, again, elevates what's, what we get to see on screen because it's done so well. Because we've seen it in the last three months of shit comes out and it's just so tone deaf. And I mean, you've got Anna, Lily and Paul riding through Los Angeles talking of, with a Kate Blanchett voiceover about how we need to reconstruct society. And she's, she's, she's riding through with fucking Yeezys on and then she goes back to an LA pad. Now, to me, that is such tone death. And, and, and that's, to me, I, I just think that's somewhat like exploitation, but in the wrong way. Whereas this is an exploitation of, the, of, of what's happening now, but it's done not to patronizing or, or give a message to its audience. It's to sort of relieve that stress of, oh shit, would you, we are, you know, let's accept that we're in this, this predicament and let's see what we can do with that. And I think this is sort of the positive side to, to to looking at something that's grim and in, in, in what in essence is reality and evolving that to give sort of slight release to an audience so I, I think I think we do see this at such stark angles I think every positive I have you detest and every detestment you have I find a positive which is just so bizarre but um, I'm sorry to cut you up cast and please go ahead Jack, are you trying to say you don't feel super bad for people who have a private can? Is they're trapped in their big mansion in their private canyon in their backyard? That's not, you know, that's not your experience during quarantine? Man. Continuing the conversation, even blowing up more about, like, if this wasn't in the time of quarantine, um, I think the characters wouldn't have worked nearly as well. I think we would be criticizing the characters for being too over the top in multiple ways and being too, like, going stir crazy, right? But I think being in this time of quarantine where everyone's going through, you know, immense stress and just having to deal with all this emotional baggage right now just from the natural world that we find ourselves in i think they work quite well this is easily a horror film though had it just been like a normal or even if they kept the gimmick of being over zoom or skype or whatever you want to say would exist without quarantine i think we would just be saying oh that's so over the top that's so unbelievable um but the natural isolation and the natural kind of craziness that comes from this time that we're in 
really boosts and really lends a hand to the film and making it work and making it connect. And I cannot stress enough this the runtime of this film being only about 50 minutes. I think that's one point we've mentioned, but it really does not overstay its welcome. And it doesn't need to pad in just extra time and extra filler and extra dumb character development that doesn't fit the narrative. It's really able to just be a focused effort, which is, I think, something that cannot be overpraised about the film. And just kind of slowly bring this to a close, I, I should probably say that um, it, it's good this film exists. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind about this. I'm really happy to have seen it. I probably won't see it again. How, however, this is to kind of just respond to uh, Jack, Jack's point on the sort of quarantine films and how, well, and your point about homemade and spree and like, there's so much, so much tone deaf shit coming out these days. Some of which is awesome, by the way. <clears throat> the tax collector. What I want to say is, in times like these, people kind of just okay. Well, in isolation, they seek entertainment, they seek escapism, and there's and if there's any time in the in history of the of the of the medium for escapism being sort of not, not only sort of excused but kind of encouraged, it's now. Sadly, well, the big ex escapist blockbusters are not being made because they need you know collaborative effort and like you can't social distancing. They kind of put Jurassic Park Seven together, right? So that's a big that's a big no no. How, however, this sort of idea of actually trying to squeeze out art from your soul while stuck in in the house is born very interesting fruits, and this is one of them. And I'm I'm honestly I'll I'll, I'll take this any day of the week over the Jonathan Glazer sort of short. Because I'm at this point, I'm more. Well, if if I was stuck in quarantine, hopefully, hopefully we won't have to be again. But I wouldn't be gravitating towards looking at a filmmaker self-filating behind the camera, trying to stay relevant, and this time trying to tell me this is art. Look at me, I'm an artist. Ah, I can just or or just oh, it's me. Look at me, I'm important. I'm I'm happily just resigning myself to watching entertainment that's being built, purpose-built as entertainment with nothing else underneath, with very little sort of thematic depth behind it. And it's fine. And this is what it is. Like, it's, like it doesn't really, it's not going to, you know, change, change the world. It's not going to enrich my, 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 my life on the planet. It's just killed 56 minutes in a very, very good way. And I'm, and I'm fine with that. Moving on from one streaming service to another, let's transition last but not least to Beyonce's visual album, Black is King. A journey is a gift. Who are you? I feel like I'm not a king yet, but like, like I got potential for it, but I'm not dead yet 100%. This visual album from Beyonce reimagines the lessons of the Lion King for today's young kids and queens in search of their own crowns. Carson, the last film on the podcast today, take it away. 
you know, as someone who's not necessarily a big visual album fan, or, you know, just being completely honest, not a huge fan of Beyonce's uh, recent discography, I quite enjoy this film quite a bit. Um, I think that this is an absolutely visually stunning project from the production design, the costume design, the cinematography. This is one of those films that truly feels like a work of art. I think the music flows incredibly well with the story. And one of the things I was least anticipating was the inclusion of the Lion King and elements from the Lion King. But actually, I think that worked shockingly well when it comes to setting the tone of the small narrative bits of the film, because in between the songs and even, I guess, throughout the songs, the film is trying to say a general narrative uh, progression of a story. And just having those moments from The Lion King there to direct how we're supposed to be feeling and kind of direct the narrative, I thought was really, really smart. Um, I think this is just an incredibly well shot film. Uh, for being a visual album, I know I've seen some of these before and it just feels like a slog to get through. This actually felt engaging. Um, I really, really enjoyed this one. I was a little worried that everyone was giving this praise, not necessarily because it um, earned it, but because it was simply just a socially relevant film. Um, but at least for me, it definitely deserves the praise. I think this is something really special um, and really good. I think me and you, Carson, are going to have to stop being on the same episode because I feel like I'm just going to repeat everything you've said and you've probably done it 10 times as better. I'm not a big fan of visual albums. It doesn't work for me. I understand that the music aesthetic, I, I, music video aesthetic in film, I, we, we spoke about Rory a few times about it. It's definitely interesting. The only one I can really imagine where it's done, and a lot of people like it, is the Kanye West one. Um, I do forget which one it is. I believe it may be the one that he did, My Beautiful Dark, Twisted Fan Set, um, and obviously that Glastonbury thing, which was uh, when Bohemian Rhapsody, we have to just stop it right there. However, Knowing that Beyonce is involved here and, and with her album of Lemonade and that visual thing, which I, I caught bits of, um, but I, I have never actually watched. Um, I would say I was slightly, slightly excited because I think Beyonce has this aesthetic where the production design of what I've seen is magically constructed and not really going into this knowing anything, but knowing that it was on Disney, Disney Plus and it did have instances of, of of being relevant to the lion king which i'm going to touch on in, in a second i think me and you maybe a little bit differ on that opinion wise Jakob, god forbid what 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 will be said about the lion king remake of his thoughts but we'll, we'll, we'll probably get onto that soon but i think this is one of the best looking projects i've seen in some time i think the production design is genuinely marvelous and, and i think it's it's to say it's beyond beautiful is, is probably an understatement. I find that I'm glad that we've ended on these two films rather than the other two, because I think it's, it's, I can't find words to describe how beautiful looking this is. I just think there's so much artistry involved here. And it's one thing I was, I was, and I'll be honest, I was relatively scared of during this. The first 20 minutes I thought, I, I, well, I felt that watching Beyonce in the Sahara with a diamond dress on, I was just thinking, I just hope this doesn't go down the tone death route because we've seen this so many times and another thing i was looking for is that i really wanted the the, the content of africa to be explored that lion king didn't didn't do that that at all the remake it didn't it didn't have that power whereas the the original really did explore that color uh, the, the the vividness to it all like there's so much there's beautiful oranges there's there's greenery there's blues 
here it does that even better i mean i just genuinely i'm, I'm lost for words to how to, to describe it how, how good looking it is and, and again i think i think that she defied the odds of, of what, uh, there to to explore culture there, there is sort of a, a snippet of going back to la and then not really going into sort of the the the, the shanty towns um which, which i think is contextually appropriate considering the Lion King motif, which I'm going to touch on in it again, like I said, in a second. But I think how it explores culture and how it explores that transition, I think it's wonderfully done. I was slightly apprehensive again about it, about it, about engulfing culture because I was really hoping, and I don't know if this is accurate. I don't know if this is not. So I'm just throwing it out there. I just hope that the background dancers involved and the artistry was from an African heritage. I really do hope that those people are from uh, local towns, local villages, local cities who are wonderful at what they do and they didn't have to bring a set of Beyonce's background dancers from, from America. I just hope to God that's true. If it's not, I would be slightly disappointed in that because considering that the film is about the African culture, it would slightly be disingenuous about it. I mean, the Black Panther thing still irks me to this day about it being such a, a strong um, motif to explore that culture, yet not one second of the film is shot in Africa, which pisses me off beyond belief because they can do that. But moving on, I, I just think that this is exceptional. I genuinely love this beyond belief. The things I do have wrong with it is that I think, and this is going to be another, oh, fuck, I love this, and this is going to be another hot take, everyone. I genuinely think that this is a better story of the Lion King than any Disney attempt. It's quite simply put, the problem that I have with this film is that it, it uses audio from the 2019 version of, of the Lion King. And I can understand why she's had to do that purely because of her collaboration with that film. But also I think that getting, getting its voice on Disney plus and highlighting that would have been a far easier deal to reach than getting the rights for the songs and the audio and then putting on Netflix or putting on Tidal, which is generally unbelievable why it's not on there. But hey-ho, whatever's happened with that program, I'm not too sure. But just, just to go back, I think that it's just the problems with that Lion King thing that sets us apart from anything else. Because ultimately, the visual element and sort of subverting that take to a, a 21st century one, I think, I think is, is, is generally a really good idea. And I think it works really well here. It's interesting. It's it's silent. It's all doing all all emotive through through sound and song, uh, and Beyonce's songs generally are amazing. In this I'm not a huge fan. I I like her like 2010 work, um, but you other than that, um, I was really really surprised with this. And 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 it's something that I remember someone would would describe the Last Jedi, and I'm not fucking. I'd, I'll get to the point. Trust me. But there was a comment was like, oh my God, there's a scene in here where you could have it as a screensaver. It's that good. Every single second of this film, I could put in a portrait, in, in, in a glass cabinet, I'd put it just on my wall and just be like, look at that. It's just so amazing to be, behold. But again, I just think ultimately to have the on the nose Lion King narratives. And I think, Cassidy, I think we, we differ there again. I just think it ultimately... It doesn't sort of, I don't think it condescends. I think it's just slightly more redundant. I think it feels there as a business decision rather than an organic one, uh, if anything else. Just to quickly jump in on your point of them using the voices from the 2019 Lion King, I will say that just quickly makes sense because that, that's actually using black voice actors compared to white voice actors like the original Lion King in general. 
Um, so just to give a little point of that. Also, just to clarify, my point to them using the Lion King sound or snippets is not a reflection of my opinion of the 2019 Lion King for the listeners out there. Just keep that in mind. I, I, sorry, just jumping again. That's an interesting point that went straight over my head. Now you put it that way, I can understand that with, you know, the Donald Glover voiceover. Yeah, I suppose that, yeah, I suppose, yeah, that's, that, it's, that's a conscious decision they've made then. Which again, yeah, I suppose that works really well. But I just think it, not even just that, I think it's just the fact of having to have a voiceover from that with, you know, James Earl Jones' iconic uh, monologue. I think that this film explains that story in its own wonderful aesthetic and, and ideology in itself. And I don't think it needed that. I wonder how this would have done on Tidal without The Lion King in, in involved in it. Well, when I say that, I mean on the nose segments of it, because I think it would have worked a lot better. But then again, regardless, like you said, Carson, it elevates the material that little bit more, makes it more personal, makes it more poignant. Fair play. I kind of feel like I'm in an episode of How I Met Your Mother, and I'm just sitting here in front of these two kids saying, "Kids, have I ever told you a story how I got cancelled? Because <laughs> this, because uh, I have a feeling, like whatever I say, it's not going to come out right." Or it could be easily twisted to make me look like I'm just, I don't know, I don't know what. But I, I don't think I like this. I can't look at it. I think I know I don't like, I didn't like what I saw. And um, I honestly, I mean, I can, I can agree with your points of just being beautiful and opulent and lavish and, 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 and all that. But there's, I kind of felt watching this, okay, well, there's, there's many problems with it I had. But one, one thing that kind of immediately just wanted to bring up was I felt watching this the way I, I felt watching 2012 uh, Tom Hooper's reimagining of Les Miserables, which is I sat in front of the screen and I looked at pictures and they all went right through my eyes and immediately out my asshole without stopping over at the brain because it just washed over me. Like not nothing really registered of of that. They just looked at a beautiful eighty-five minute long music video that's also at the same time could double as like a post extended postcard video for a World Cup in an African country. Like, a, like let's invite people to Africa. Let's show us you know like all, all, you know the culture and the heritage of African nations african tribes and cultures and uh, and all that that's all and and, and i think i need to say this because for the record it's all a a laudable a commendable idea because well as you've like jack's kind of pointed to this because well it's kind of africa as a place for filming or for um, cultural heritage is kind of orphaned and has been opened for a very, very long time, and it still continues to be. But I don't think this is one of those things. I don't think this is a film that's going to uh, turn the tide in any way, because I have a bad feeling. When I was watching this, I had this sort of sinking feeling in the back of my throat that this is, again, this is, I was secretly hoping that this actually naturally came out of um, uh, Beyonce's sort of, artistic drive that this is what she wanted to make and then fair enough she's a musical artist and that's all she knows she like music video is her aesthetic and that's pretty much what it is only feature length but i have this sinking feeling that this is attached to a 
a corporate agenda. As in, whichever way this happened, whether this was her idea, this, this was derived from the artist, and then this was picked up by Disney, or the other way around, whether this was something that Disney said, it would be a good idea to try this, and then we need to hire Beyonce to make this happen. This looks bad anyway, because it kind of looks like this big multi-billion dollar corporation trying to look woke, to, to look um, liberal and progressive, to attract young, younger audience, to lure younger audiences into thinking that they're liberals and progressives themselves when they're not. They're a big company and all they care about is selling you their product and this is how they sell it. They, 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 they made this whole sort of gaggle of artists into the sort of poster people for wokeness. And I, I, on a fundamental level, I kind of disagree with this because I, 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 and I tried to research this. Oh shit, this is Summerland again. I am getting angry. On a fan, I've, I've tried to look how much this costs to make because I'm, I'm looking at this and I look at these beautiful vistas in Africa and these beautiful costumes and these beautiful black performers and these beautiful people, just talented people just dancing and singing and, and performing in front of the camera and behind the camera as well. And, and all I'm thinking is that this, this is a postcard. This is, this, this has very, this is very little artistic merit to me. Uh, can we spend this amount of money, even, even with Disney's money, and actually shoot a fucking film in Africa, hire African artists, and then just put this money there, and then, okay, we, we, you don't need to, I mean, fine, okay, she, she didn't do anything wrong, but what, what you're hiring is, is a multi-millionaire who's a, an absolute, ab, absolute star and an icon of su American success to talk about a country she, she's never visited probably, or maybe barely visited. And just, I kind of just feel this is not right. I would love for this money to kind of go towards the production of an actual film that, that kind of leverages these settings, leverages these cultures, you know, in an honest way. This, to me, this is, this is like a Tarsem Singh sort of video, which, which is, fundamentally beautiful but it's kind of empty in a way and shouldn't we be looking for uh, for thematic depth in a visual album because it, it it's it's an accompaniment to music but it kind of saddens me in a way that this this kind of is being lauded for i mean yeah i'm i kind of feel like i'm just overstepping the marking here because i'm expected to say yes great job this is beautiful because we need we need to champion these things even if they're not great. But this defeats the purpose uh, of this to me because it kind of just almost gives green light to these big studios to kind of to, to kind of say, yeah, we can we can we can dress like we can pretend we care because it works and we can continue doing that. So we can make another Black Panther and just hire Ryan Coogler and never give him a final say into whatever he, he's into his artistic vision and then pretend uh, we care and then actually convince the Academy to give it a few nominations to boot without actually actually awarding anything to them. And, and to actually add insult to injury when you mentioned Black Panther in a, in an, in an adaptation of a comic book uh, character, which was the, which was designed to be a token character as well by a bunch of white men. It just, it's just wrong to me. 
like fundamentally just I, I felt kind of just uh, like this 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 thing's kind of just okay well like why 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 are we applauding this this is fake to me I, I because I, I I feel even though probably Beyonce and and her massive sort of cast of car of I don't want to say co-conspirators, but you know, like the people, like co-directors, co-writers, and performers, and everyone else, they're kind of just like, a, like I felt they were this big sock puppet with Bob Iger's in hand, just guiding this, so that he we could he could convince me that Disney has actually developed a conscience for some reason, and I don't think that's right. See, I'm going to fire back and disagree a bit on a couple points that you made. Um, I, it's very easy to look at this as just a Beyonce project, but when you actually look at the directors and the co-directors, there's a very long list of creators from Africa who's been doing who've been doing work in Africa, who've been pushing African cinema. So I think to look at this and just say, "Oh, Beyonce might not know what she's talking about," or look at this, I agree to a point, but also you got to understand that there are more voices behind this who do have an idea of what they're talking about. It's not quite like you were saying back with Summerland with Jessica Swale. It's not just like that. There are others here who have their voices clearly heard. And as far as Disney, I think me and Jack have had multiple episodes where we've been very, very critical of Disney and representation. And I agree that there's an undeniable sense of like, oh, if this wasn't socially relevant, like Disney would not be championing this if it wasn't that society made it, you know, quote unquote, easy for them to do. It's the same thing with that happens with the LGBT community. Every June, every company and their mother comes out and fucking puts their pride flag on whatever. And because it, it's easy to do. It is representation, sure, but it's not necessarily a bold step because society has accepted that you can just do this. At the same time, though, I think it's also important to praise Disney for actual moments of representation like this. And I said the same thing when The Lion King came out and they had their cast for that. So many times Disney does this really shitty thing where they will praise um, their diversity and praise something that turns out just to be a scene in a movie, just like a single scene or, you know, all these fake moments of representation. So where you can be really, I don't know if cynical is the right word, but you can break down films like Black is King and say, well, is this really genuine? What work are you doing? But I think that also kind of defeats the purpose of, yes, it might not be at the top of the stairs where you want to go, but it is drastically a step up. And if we praise Disney for true representation and criticize them when they fail in that department, you have to think that that pushes the momentum forward a little bit and gives the movement more momentum. Um, so I, I'm not going to say those are like unfair criticisms, but I also don't know if being so judgmental and so critical and breaking down every little aspect like that, I don't know if that's also kind of, you know, accomplishing and helping the movement as much as it seems like it would, if that makes sense. But the, the, but does the film help the movement? I don't want to. Okay, if if it comes across as I'm judgmental, I'm I, I I'm honestly torn about this because on one way, in, in one way, I can appreciate the visual artistry, but then there is like as I said, like I look at this and in these beautiful pictures, and then it's basically if Michael Jackson was alive, this this would be probably his project as well because he will like he was almost making twenty minute long music videos anyway in the eighties. And this is kind of in the same sort of basket to me in terms of, okay, well, people are tr desperately want to ascribe value to things that kind of just are, well, they don't have the sort of the shoulders to bear the value in a way. And I don't think this, this thing has, ha has the shoulders to kind of, kind of just be the sort of, the sort of poster thing for, for, for appreciating African heritage because the, well, the heritage should be appreciated, but it should come 
to me organically from a different place. This is, I don't want to say it's morally corrupt because it's not in a way. Because as you said, like there's there's hundreds of people that involved in this, and this is not a singular vision, and this is this is a collaborative sort of effort. But I kind of feel like it it's it's almost hijacked by the attention-seeking behavior of a big company that's desperate for your dollars. And um, this is why I kind of well, it it kind of saddens me that this like my comments kind of come across as judgmental because I'm I honestly okay well. Through my own heritage, I always identify with the martyrs, the freedom fighters, and with with the hopeless causes. That's 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 you know, well, I have I have that kind of blood in my veins. That's you know, despite my the color of my skin. That's 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 ingrained in my culture, and I and I honestly I'm I'm allergic to sort of attempts to hijack good causes towards just making cheap money. And I have a have a bad feeling that this this kind of stinks of this, and then and and it has Bob Iger written all over this, and I, and 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 I've just fundamentally disagree with with applauding this because it kind of reassures them that this is a shit they can get away with. I, I fall um, more so in Carson's camp purely because I think, as you said, Carson, we've taken quite a strong aim at Disney. Now, it's one thing to pounce on a conglomerate uh, such as Disney when they're not clearly doing enough of what the, what the, what they say they should be doing and also what they're trying to do. We've seen a lot of instances in the past where it's been so hollow you could fall fucking straight through it. So I can, I can, I can like you, you said, Carson, I, I can fully accept and swallow that pride to, to say that I think that while there is a lot more work to be done, I think this is a really good step forward to get a iconic, legendary empowering black woman on screen and, and have not only a voice tell the, tell the story in itself, which I think is quite a poignant meta um, element to the whole proceedings. But, but it's also something to just get on to, to have it engulfed in, in with the Lion King. I mean, when you go on Disney Plus, it is recommended against, uh, against each other. So when you go on, this is the, the, and it's straight up in its next box. There'll be a lot of people out there who haven't probably seen either. And it's going to be an opening to to watch it, so it's it's on the right platform. I I, I would I would hope. My my issue is with, with that, and and I think maybe where I might fall slightly into Jacob's uh, thing is that it comes from a place where would would this would this have got to the length and strengths it had without Disney Plus? And again, I go back to the title thing. I would really like to have seen it on on something black owned. I would really like to have seen this with with Jay Z, with all those producers on board, um, like they did with, with 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 a few of his albums in the past, which I believe they did with Lemonade at the beginning. But I may be wrong about that. I just think it would have had a really good home there. This is this is a story um, about about, uh, about black culture, spoken by and narrated through song by a black woman. I I, I it's a difficult argument to have why I don't want it on Disney plus. And, and, and again, I think I've just got to accept the fact that it's on a platform where millions of people can see it. And that is for the best. And I think ultimately in the long run and what we've seen from this company, that is a, that is a positive direction. And it's difficult to assess that and be negative about it, I find, but that's my personal thing, because I think I, we, me and Carson have shouted about this a lot. Me more so. Carson said it delicately. I've shouted about it. I, I've, 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 I, that's the way I'm, I just think that, it's so annoying not to have seen them go, go in this direction earlier, but I think they've done it. 
I've got to sort of deal with it. I think they've done a great job at it. I hope more people watch this. I hope more people fucking watch this than the other abomination that is The Lion King. But like Carsten said, there is a positivity to it. There is a poignancy to it. And this is to John Farrow's Lion King. But do I want a reset on that film? Yes, of course I do. It'd be nice to have um, it shot in certain scenes on location in Africa. And I would also have liked to have seen a black director behind that story of, uh, of African culture. However, uh, it's what it is. John Favreau got his hands on it. Like he seems to do everything at Disney now. Um, but overall, I'm pleasantly surprised with this to an extent where maybe I'll go, I'll go out and seek um, more visual albums, but I'll say this, never, and nevertheless, I will go back and watch Lemonade after this. So if anything, I'm not ever going to watch The Lion King again. I'm not really interested in the Disney thing, but I will go watch Beyonce and I will go watch the visual medium. So if anything, I'm, I'm doing, I'm, 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 my conscience is clear, if anything. If I ask you a question, um, that basically both of you, would you think that, okay, I'm not going to give you my answer first, I want to hear from you first. Would you think that this thing, I, I, I struggle to call it a film, like this sort of piece of art, I suppose, would it have its place if in, in this current time, if uh, the big studios had had figured out that you know like inclusivity is a good thing say 20 years earlier big question um i think yes and no to a point i think yes one of the reasons this feels so rewarding and it feels like such a big deal is because it's a celebration where cinematically um race is not necessarily celebrated on this level especially coming from a place like disney I, I don't know if it would have had the same drive and like fire behind it had they figured that out 20 years ago. I mean, they'll also, I mean, that's judging this just off cinematically, right? Like socially, it fully depends. I mean, it's an impossible question to truly pose because you don't know if there was proper inclusion 20 years ago, what that would mean for our social society right now. So I think it's a very loaded question that's pretty impossible to answer. I would say generally it wouldn't feel as revolutionary. Would it still have a place? probably but i it's, it's really hard to judge but that's also looking like i said just in the context of representation in media and in film and in cinema where i mean obviously the push for equality and rights and you know social change is much bigger than just on screen i think that's a very loaded question so let's specify further but okay would this film receive the applause it's receiving in that context so if if the big studios like Universal and Disney had had done their duty earlier than than, than let's just say now, Castle, I'll just go first. I don't, but I, I don't think it's it's a film that purely rests on, rests itself on representation. I think it's one that explores culture and it and, and it um, exercises that right to to indulge in it. It's difficult because we're we're talking about two we're talking about a, a, what, a hypothetical world there i mean it's difficult to sort of give, give a response i, I can understand why what Carson's talking about there, there, there is a theme throughout cinema and i'm just i'm going to go like go like, like niche with it i just think that great art always suffices no matter what through every, every any era there's a reason why kate bush um is lauded to the point that she is because of her visual elements when her music videos and you'll find that there's a reason why 40 years later people are still talking about how somewhat magical the, the, that filmmaking ability 
and and how that the con construct of those music videos are put together and we're not talking about maroon five and again granted kate bush has had a longer longevity there for, for the zeitgeist to indulge but regardless i think that this film works wonderfully visually i think this is outstanding i think you put this back 40 years ago or 30 years ago i still think people would still regard it visually as I iconic in that way even more so but it's interesting to point out its themes and its representation because ultimately as i said at the beginning i don't think it's defined by rep representation i think it's just something to indulge and explore a culture that's not explored to a certain degree but Again, I think if we lived in if, if we lived in that world, Jacob, I think that this film would have been given positives. Don't get me wrong, but weirdly enough, it'd probably be. In a, in a, and this is in a hypothetical world, everybody. If we lived in that world and and race was was in a different, completely different atmosphere, and everyone was fully accepting, all this would get criticism for. Would it be self indulgent? And I think if, if that if that's a, the only criticism I can really find, I think in in our world, I think. It's positive. That, that's probably a massive positive. How it does explore that in a, in a really engaging and and interesting fashion. But it it is it is. I mean, it's 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 hypothetical. I mean, you could probably come away and say anything about it. But I think you do raise an interesting point, nevertheless. Uh, I think basically just what I what I wanted to sort of say myself was basically I have I feel that in a perfect world this display this well, I mean, it's not the the film I have a problem with. It's the sort of, or the, um, it's not that I have a problem with it. I don't really have a problem with it. It's just not for me per se, because it's sort of it's stuck in a little bit of an, a critical echo chamber. But it's the representation and all that is not really ingrained in the film. It's, you're correct in that. But its response is dictated by this. Like the critical response is basically is one note almost. It's all people sort of, applauding and, 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 and bowing to, 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 the, to the message that may, may be sort of implicitly imprinted onto it by, by the sort of critical reception, not by the artist herself and themselves. As well. But I'd say the reason why it kind of gets this sort of 98% on Rotten Tomatoes and whatever is because A, is such, there's such a dearth of diverse cinema out there and B, big studios need to change their need to change their perception they don't necessarily want to change they want to ch change the way they're seen and that's that's where my problem with this is because beyonce has the means and she has the you know she co-produced it herself so she has the means she has and if she had the desire she could have produced it without involving disney this could have been this could have been something else and then because it can't okay feels to me like the Disney involvement is going to be a, of detriment to this. And then I don't want to be hyperbolic again, but I don't really think this is going to be um, remembered forevermore. Like five bucks says like next year, no one's going to remember this because it is a visual, it, it's, it's an album. It's, it's a Tarzan Singh video that's 85 minutes long with beautiful costumes and beautiful performances and absolutely and, and, and very limited reward value as far as I'm concerned. To round out Clappercast, we'd like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. Carson, let's go with you first. So going off our Black is King discussion, one of the co-directors of that film was someone who goes by the name of Blitz the Ambassador and also one of the cinematographers from that film named Michael Fernandez. They both made a film, I believe, 
2018, maybe a couple of years ago on Netflix called The Burial of Kojo. It is a really, really fantastic film. If you like the visuals of Black is King and that kind of artistic element, definitely a film for you. It has some of the best cinematography I've seen maybe in the past 10 years. It is truly stunning, but it's also compared to Black is King, much more a narrative feature. It's about a, a girl who goes on this journey um, and it's very fantastical and magical, but also just visually stunning. Um, it's one of those films that come off as just being a piece of art, even though the narrative is much more stronger than Black is King. Um, as I mentioned, it's streaming on Netflix. It is a little film, not too many people saw it, but it's definitely worth the time. And Yako, what have you got for us this week? I, I was originally thinking um, I, I was going to come in and recommend the first Blackwater film, but we kind of discussed it in a, in a way, so I might as well, and because I haven't watched too many things over the last few weeks, I might as well continue with the trend of, with the trend of pissing off Jack. Uh, now I'm going to recommend a film he absolutely hated, which is Vavarium. I mean, Jack, you probably you know where you stand with this. I know he's just shaking his head. Just, oh, this is how I get fired. But um, it's this Irish sort of high concept sort of satire about well, a couple stuck in a seemingly sort of endless sort of labyrinth of houses and who have to you know, pretend that they have a, a, a life and then in order to kind of escape this sort of weird, strangely surreal hell. And it's, I know you've hated this with a passion because I read your review, but I kind of have to say that it is worth watching, especially if you kind of get, get over certain, certain aspects of it and kind of see it as an allegory, not so much for like a housing market crisis and, uh, um, and things like that, but uh, kind of like a broader allegory for the uh, anxieties of adulthood. It, it stars Imogen Poots, who's actually quite quite fun to to look at because she's a very talented act, act, actor and then who's very expressive and charismatic. And Jesse Eisenberg, who's well, being Jesse Eisenberg because that's what he always is. And you know, it's a it's a it's a fun little satire that some people hate, some people love. So it's clearly going to divide opinion, which is even more of a reason to watch it. Don't watch Vivarium. Well, that is it for this week's episode of Clubbercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Jakub? You can find me on Twitter at TalkAboutFilm and you can find me on Letterboxd at uh, letterboxd.com slash Ravik or as if you just search my name, Jakub Flash. And yourself, Carson? Letterboxd, just Carson Tamar is the name, on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews. And you can find me both at Twitter and letterbox with the username at JackLukeSharp and you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and at ClapperLTD on Twitter make sure to rate, subscribe or follow to be notified when the next episode comes out you can also find us on our letterbox at ClapperLTD you can also find our Kofi link on our website to support our team thank you all for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema